Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, this week, the European Central Bank will be meeting to discuss, among other things, how to start pairing back its stimulus. Uh, I want to bring in Simon Ballard, a global credit strategist here uh, at Bloomberg. He is based in London. And Simon, I really want to talk to you about the apparent debate that's heating up at the ECB, which is, do they have to wind down their purchases first under the quantitative easing program that they have going on right now? Or can they start by raising interest rates up from the negative deposit rate uh, area that it is in now. I feel like this is this is crucial and has the potential to uh, really shake markets. Can you give us a sense of what the debate is? No, absolutely, Lisa. And I think you know the key point here is while you know they're looking towards the normalisation of policy over time, I think there's a very different and a very distinct uh, definition to be made between normalisation of policy and raising interest rates. Um, and I think the rhetoric, the statement, the language that comes from the ECB over the course of the coming months is going to be how they approach uh, withdrawing in terms of their, their their stimulus. As we've seen with the ECB's corporate sector purchase program data, the, the latest numbers came out uh, this afternoon, delayed because of the, the holiday in Europe yesterday. As of the end of last week, they own just over $90 billion now of corporate bonds. So they're continuing to buy, they're continuing to stimulate the the, the credit markets um, that's, through, that's uh, up through from- a quoted- so that's almost $100 billion of uh, corporate bonds in the past year. Absolutely. That's corporate bonds plus all, 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 the, all the agency debt that they've been buying as well. So that is purely just the corporate bonds that they've been trying to sort of uh, reflate the, uh, you know, the, the, the corporate sector with, should I say. So, yeah, the language going forward is going to be very key to how they sort of address moving towards that tightening bias. Um, but while the, you know, the, the Federal Reserve is expected to increase again next, uh, next month, or this month, um, and then possibly again before the end of the year, I think you know, it's going to be about the, the, the ECB's language rather than the actions in terms of interest rates. Simon, uh, yes, that uh, Federal Reserve meeting, I guess, the 13th and the, the 14th of, of June. Uh, but I'm wondering, has the investment community in Europe uh, been satisfied with the purchase program of the European Central Bank? And as much as if there's always a bid, you're always going to find something to sell the central bank. What happens when the central bank stops buying whatever it is you're selling? Well, therein lies the uh, therein lies the long term problem, Pim. And you know, you've hit the nail exactly on the head. Is the is the market happy with what the ECB is doing? It depends which side of the trade you're looking at. If you're looking at it from an investor's perspective, wanting to buy reasonably priced, higher yielding assets for your portfolio, then no, you're not going to be happy because we've seen the compression of spreads, we've seen the erosion of yield through the crowding out effect of central banks, not just the ECB, the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve, through their uh, accommodative policies as well. But the stimulation has brought down yields and returns for the the investor. Alternatively, for those guys that have been, you know, along their portfolio over the last several years, they've just watched valuations go through the uh, go through the roof as spreads have compressed and uh, and and quality curves have flattened as investors have been, as we say, crowded out into high, into the high yielding space, yeah. taking on riskier assets. So, Simon, I'm looking at a 10-year German yield of uh, about a quarter of a percentage point. This is nothing for 10 years. Basically, uh, you are giving. Germany free money for 10 years to do whatever they want. 
that is how uh, desirous people are of this debt. People do not seem to be expecting that the ECB will come up with any plan to extricate itself from the stimulus program that they have in place any time soon. So is this just an intellectual argument as far as how they might approach uh, some kind of withdrawal from the stimulus? Or is there actually going to be a timetable put in place as well? Well, I think, you know, again, we'll look for the language from the ECB as we do from the Federal Reserve in time in terms of their proposed or their intended uh, time frame. But it's the pace at which that withdrawal happens that could potentially spook the markets, could scare investors away from the uh, from the uh, from the high yielding assets that they've been crowded out into um, over the course of the uh, over the course of the last couple of years. Um, You know, we have a quarter of percent on the 10-year Bund. That is a lot better than the negative yielding front end of the German curve, which has been negative out to eight, nine years um, in recent months. And again, that really reflects the, the underlying uncertainty of the investor base, if you wish, wanting to be in these assets which are being bought by the central banks, but at the same time still wanting to hold treasury, still wanting to hold German government bonds against the backdrop of an uncertain macro environment. So they need that haven cover versus the yield and the, uh, the riskier assets that they're, uh, they're holding on the other side of the hand. Simon, is it worth asking what lessons uh, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan and the Bank of England, what lessons they have learned, if anything, from the Federal Reserve's efforts with quantitative easing? Well, I think, you know, the, the lesson they're learning is the, uh, the susceptibility of the market to react negatively and positively to, uh, to, uh, to incorrectly timed, uh, you know, headlines and statements. And I think, you know, as we go through the process of normalization in the US, you know, the impact that this could have on the back end of the, the quality curve on the high yielding assets uh, within Europe could be, could be quite severe as we, as we pull away the, you know, the purse strings and the support mechanism, then, you know, Looking at how we, you know, how we fund, how we finance some of these weaker corporates that people have been buying into for the uh, for the incremental yield, right. um, could uh, could be could be very difficult. So, Simon, given this backdrop of seemingly endless central bank money. Can anything shake it up like, for example, say the UK election that's happening this week that could potentially pose uh, somewhat of a surprising uh, element to the markets should uh, Prime Minister Theresa May not win re-election? Do you think that this could actually shake things? I think more importantly, it would be Prime Minister Corbyn that would shake things. If we did get the surprise and as the polls have been moving over the last couple of weeks from a from a 20 basis point lead for the Conservatives over the Labour Party down to some polls would now suggest sort of just a one basis point uh, uh, lead uh, between them. Uh, the implications of a Labour socialist government coming into the UK with their tax policies and their uh, their thoughts on sort of trying to reflate and nationalise the economy, I think, could be a big trigger for uh, for a, for an unwind of risk appetite in Europe. But uh, well, certainly starting within the UK, but that would feed very quickly across Europe as the as questions around Brexit and more sort of the global recovery uh, come into question. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Simon Ballard is our global credit strategist for Bloomberg. He is based in London. yield curve is contracting. We have seen a steady decline in the gap between 30-year and two-year Treasury yields. Now it's down to 151 basis points. That's basically lowest levels since September. This is at a time when the U.S. economy is supposedly growing. We're supposedly having uh, a good time, a good uh, sort of Headway, uh, well, we got a good. You know what yeah. we got today? We got a good rally in bonds. If you take a look at the long bond, it is up twenty three thirty seconds. It is now yielding two point eight percent. And as you said, contrast that with the uh, the ten year. Right, take a look. 
2.13%. Well, ba- basically, basically, the rally in bonds means that people typically are bearish. Peter Kenny is here with us to help make sense of what is going on, senior market strategist with Global Markets Advisory Group. And uh, Peter, you serve on a lot of corporate boards. You've been in this market for decades. Uh, try to help us understand the mixed signals. Is the yield curve telling us that if the Fed continues on its path of more aggressively raising rates this year, that it is making a policy mistake. We are at a pivot point here in this narrative where we're seeing compression in yields, uh, and that compression in yields is dramatic. And as you pointed out, we haven't seen yields this low since September, so well before the presidential election. That's telling us there's a lot of risk off in terms of the global investor mindset. There is tremendous compression, and that compression is in the face of the Fed projecting three more rate moves this year, which I don't think is going to be the case. We may see June, but after June, it's fairly, pretty much off the table, anything from that point on. And I, the reason why I say that is because even though we're seeing equities at, at or near all-time high, highs, we're seeing economic data that is underwhelming. Last month's uh, employment report was a classic example of that. Not only did we get a miss of meaningful size, we saw revisions that were significant for pri- previous two months, and we saw nothing inside that labor report that spoke to any sort of robust growth. Wage inflation, average week, labor force participation, none of that data spoke to any sort of robust growth. So I think that as much as the Fed wants to project higher rates and wants the markets to believe that rates are going to move higher, markets are telling the Fed, we don't think so. And since the bond market leads the equity market, I think it spells potential headwinds for the equity market as well. So what are you telling your investors? I mean, if you're taking a look right now at the 30-year, as I said, 2.8% for a 30-year, I don't get it. A one-year is 1.1%. I mean, how, how do you make sense of this? Well, it's telling us two things. First of all, it's telling us that the, the market does not believe that the Fed's going to raise rates three times this year from here to the end of the year. So does that mean that if they do, then we've got a real problem? Uh, I, Pim, I don't think it's going to get there. I don't think it's going to get there because it's just the flattening of the curve is indicating that the Fed, I don't want to say can't, but I just think it would be very unwise unless we see something in Q2 that speaks to something that we didn't see in Q1, which I would argue we're not seeing. I, don't, I just don't see it yet. Okay, well, here, can you, can you solve this paradox for me? Because a lot of people have said something is amiss. You have bond yields going down, which typically is bearish. You've got stock prices going up. You have a yield mm-hmm. curve flattening, which typically means slower growth ahead. Mm-hmm. Stocks seem to not care. Uh, other people say, no, this all works out just fine because it's a Goldilocks scenario. The Fed will keep rates low. You're going to have growth kind of chug along. Good job openings from the Jolt report today. Where do you stand on this? Okay. Okay. So if you look at the equity markets versus versus the, the debt markets, the equity markets at, are at or near all-time highs. However, keep in mind that they're trading at a PE that is well above a historical standard. Um, the Dow Jones is trading at a PE currently of 1861. Uh, the S&P 500 is trading at a, at a PE of 1934. The NASDAQ is off the charts, of course. Much of this move higher in prices that we've seen in equities was largely predicated upon the the Trump bump. Uh, 
which we've seen largely wash away in the debt markets. However, in the equity markets, we're still seeing these elevated, uh, elevated uh, valuations. And I think that that is largely due to the large cap tech space. So if you look at retail, the retail sector, the energy sector, the financial sector, these are large sectors of the S&P 500. All of them are down meaningfully. Yeah, but they, I mean, in fairness, you could say that they all have some idiosyncratic issues, right? Energy uh, prices have come down quite sure. a bit. The retail sec- sector is being decimated by all sorts of mm-hmm. trends. Uh, and then you have financials, which are mm-hmm. directly affected by the yield curve. Yes, but they may have idiosyncratic issues that are very vertical specific, but they still have to participate in a meaningful move higher in the market. And they're not going to. Well, I was just looking, for example, ExxonMobil. The shares of ExxonMobil are down 10.5% so far this year. Perfect. The shares point. of Macy's are down 37% so far this year. Yep. But guess what? If you'd like to buy shares in Tesla, which has got a market value, I believe, greater than Ford, uh, you're buying into a stock that is up more than 63% so far this year. Yes. So it's very much uh, a question of software. Tesla's really – it's a manufacturing company, but it's really a software company. Software companies stand to gain the most from this move higher that we've seen over the last three or four months because of some accounting changes that are coming into play in July, which will force them to recognize software revenues in a way that has never been re- recognized before, which is going to help earnings. It's going to help their revenue numbers. It's going to help their P.E. Salesforce.com up 34% so Classic far case. this year. Classic case. Well, so do you think that overall there's enough headwind, mm-hmm. enough of a headwind yeah. to uh, cause a market correction? Or is yeah. there so much bifurcation mm-hmm. that it's going to kind of just steady itself? Exactly. So the, the, the latter And I think that there is enough bifurcation, there's enough dissimilarity within the market for there to be a a bit of a floor for equities. So let's say we see the uh, S&P 500 pull in over the next month and a half to two months, maybe 5.5, 5 5.8%. Let's say it settles in and finds support at 2,300. That would be meaningful and very, really very, very positive because it would give the sectors of the market that have underperformed an opportunity to catch up. You're, you're assuming that there's some rational thought process behind this, right? <laughs> I, I mean, it's a little hard to, to do that, you know, when you're looking at, let's say, a company like Tesla, and the stock yeah. is up 63%, yeah. and, you know, it is still on, you know, it is still a hope story there. It, it, it definitely is very much yeah. a hope story, and it's extremely elevated in terms of its valuations. It's it's in that space, and it's that's that's part of the DNA of that company, and it, it's got sales. There's the other companies, software companies that are in that space that that get that merit that valuation. Thanks very much for being with us, as always. Uh, Peter Kenny is senior Thank market you. strategist at Global Market Advisory and independent market strategist for Kenny and Co. There's been a ton of speculation about the slowdown in vehicle sales in the U.S. and what this means for automakers. So luckily, we have someone to really help us understand just how big of a slowdown this really is going to be. Mark Lenave is vice president of U.S. marketing sales and service for Ford Motor Company, and he joins us uh, by phone from Dearborn, Michigan. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, 
Ford actually had a monthly victory over General Motors uh, last month with respect to sales. Uh, You came out with sales numbers that were ahead of GMs and better than expected. That's the good news. The bad news was it seems like there was quite a bit of support that Ford received from some of the fleet sales and still saw uh, a material slowdown in sales by retailers. How concerned are you about this? And have we already seen the worst of the sales declines? Well, first of all, I appreciate being on with you guys. And, um, you know, the, the, the year so far has been really interesting from uh, a, a vehicle sales standpoint. We, it's important to remember that we're operating in, a, in an industry we believe is going to be 17.5, 17.6 million units for the year. That's that's an historically high number, you know, going back, you know, 20, 30 years, even some of the heydays of the early uh, early part of the 2000s. So we have leveled off, plateaued, as we, uh, as we say back here in Dearborn, from last year's record level, but it's still a very healthy pace. Uh, retail is relatively flat with a year ago. Uh, uh, our fleet business, uh, overall fleet business in the industry, about the same. And, and Ford's tracking right with those numbers, albeit at, at, at much higher transaction pricing due to selling a very rich mix of, of our new pickup van and SUV lineup. Mark, could you speak a little bit about the company's efforts to create a core of electric or hybrid vehicles and why that is so important for the future of the company? If you look to the future and some of the, obviously, uh, uh, regulatory standards that we're going to have to meet, as well as meeting as meeting customer, customer expectations, um, we're putting an electrified uh, uh a technology, be it mild hybrids all the way to full plug-in electrics across much of our lineup. We don't feel like the business should be such that it's just small specialized vehicles that carry this technology. So we're looking at technology broadly across our car, uh, SUV, and even truck and van lineups. And and we want to have make sure that the consumers have choice where they can they can make economic decisions based on vehicle usage or they're using the car for just you know for work or for or, or for just uh, leisure activity and they can make a, a logical decision and have a lot of choice so they want a full plug-in uh, versus uh, a mild hybrid or EcoBoost engines that also get great fuel economy you know Mark you were talking about the volume of sales and then uh, hinted at the price point and that basically prices are going up that, that consumers are buying more expensive cars so even and, and trucks so even if they're buying fewer of them the actual uh, revenues are are bigger. I'm wondering how long you see prices rising to the degree that they have, given the fact that we are seeing deterioration in uh, auto loans, in the quality, uh, in uh, consumers' appetite to incur more debt, and the lending standards on behalf of big banks from J.P. Morgan to Citigroup. Well, the trend that we're seeing in, in pricing, which is large, largely driven by what we call segmentation, which is people moving from passenger cars into utilities and trucks, has really been going very steadily since 2009, really coming out of the, out of the big recession. So we've seen year-on-year increase not only in unit volume, uh, but almost all the industry growth in that window has been in the SUV and truck lineup. And, and within those numbers, within SUVs and trucks, customers are electing for uh, electing and choosing much higher trim levels, uh, higher technology packages. Uh, the vehicles themselves are getting more expensive as we, as we add uh, refinement, technology, safety uh, equipment to the vehicle. So in some, in some regards, it's tended to defy gravity. Um, in terms of prices, uh, the price increases that, that we've seen. Facilitated now, by incentives and cheap credit. Yeah, but as a, percent of, uh, as a percent of selling price, incentives are really relatively stable over the last seven or eight years because you're spending somewhat higher per unit incentive spend against 
you know, a, a much higher selling price. Now, credit has entered into it. Over the last seven years, interest, nominal interest rates have gone down. Fuel, you know, fuel, which goes into the average consumer's cost of uh, vehicle usage in the month has, has come down. And, and payment terms have extended out, although not much more so than we've seen over a, a 20-year, uh, 20-year trend line. And, and leasing is relatively stable to where it was six, seven, eight years ago as a percent of the overall market. So it's something that we keep an eye on, but it's, it's uh, certainly not uh, what we would consider any kind of an alarming factor at this time. Inventory levels. Speak to those that are on lots all across the United States. When does that backup make it more difficult for you to get the next year's model out to those dealers? You've got some spot excesses and a couple, you know, you can look across a competitive landscape on a couple of segments from a couple of competitors. But at Ford, we feel we're in ideal position, sitting at roughly 70 days, heading in an important summer selling season. The industry is in in relatively good shape. You can point to you know a a given competitor in a, in a in a segment or two that would be considered somewhat high. Uh, many have reasons for doing it. They might have planned uh, downtime for plant changeovers and things of that sort, but. Uh, overall, the industry uh, is not what I would call stock affected, where that's been uh, where you've got an, uh, an unmanageable level of stock in the industry. I want to thank you very much for joining us today, uh, Mark uh, Lenave is the vice president of marketing and sales and service at the Ford Motor Company, uh, joining us uh, from uh, Dearborn, Michigan. We're going to take a look now at labor, but not just any labor, people who want to come to work in the United States on H-1B visas. And here to tell us more is Caitlin Weber, government analyst, global trade policy for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us from Washington. Caitlin, a pleasure to have you with us. Um, I was looking at the number of applicants for these 85,000 spots that are uh, available for the H-1B visa program, and last year... If I'm right, 230,000 people applied for just 85,000 visas. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's right. Um, And I don't think we have the numbers out this year for this current filing season, which just um, ended back in April. But um, the, uh, the level was probably right up right up there with the demand. Um, I think that the USCIS, U.S. Citizenship Immigration Services, had to actually stop applications after five days because there was just so much demand. So how does the program work? Because I know that there's there are time limits involved, but then there are also exemptions that can be made. So under the H-1B visa, a highly skilled worker can be brought in to work in the U.S. for a specific company for a period of up to six years, three years um, with another three-year um, a three-year extension. The program is in, intended to um, only bring in workers whose skill set, um, you know, are, are in scarce supply in the U.S. Um, U.S. companies are supposed to attest that they have made efforts to hire American workers that they couldn't fire, they couldn't, they couldn't find American workers to fill these slots, and so they have to make those attestations when they're when they're filing to bring in workers on these visas. Right. Well, President Trump has been a big critic of these visas and uh, has said that they are very bad for U.S. workers because uh, companies give foreign workers a priority and ostensibly will be uh, more willing to hire overseas if it means paying uh, less. What's the status on President Trump's efforts to clamp down on this program? And what are some of the rebuttals that some of these companies uh, have made to some of the criticisms? 
So right around when the filing season was opening a couple of months ago, the Trump administration put out a couple of warnings to companies telling them not to discriminate against U.S. workers. They put out another warning saying that they were going to step up work site enforcement um, visits um, and they were going to target specifically IT outsourcing companies who are particularly dependent on these visas for those site visits. There was also an executive order that came out uh, late April after the filing season was already closed where the administration ordered ordered a multi-agency review of the program with a goal that uh, eventually there will be new rules or guidance that could change the way that the visas are allocated. Right now, they're allocated randomly, just in a random lottery. But increasingly, there's been calls from inside the administration and outside the administration to allocate those visas based on pay or based on skills that are um, in scarce supply. What do you hear from the companies that would be most affected by this? Uh, Infosys, for example, they're based in India. Tata Consultancy Services, also based in India. You have Cognizant, based in the United States, as well as Accenture. They're based in Dublin. They're all big users of H-1B visas. It's interesting. You know, of course, these companies, um, they say that the the current rhetoric around the program is really unfortunate, that they they bring in these workers to do, you know, to do good work. And they're an important part of the economy. At the same time, these companies are really trying to increase local hiring in the United States. They, um, on a lot of their earnings calls, they're sort of, um, you know, boasting about the fact that they are hiring thousands and thousands more Americans, more U.S. workers um, than, and they're, and they're, they're trying to bring down their H-1B visas. Now, there's there's questions about what that might mean for their margins. Um, but, you know, they are trying to sort of balance this line between saying that this is a, this is a good program, um, you know, these workers are important and, we, and the United States economy needs them, at the same time saying we're trying to respond to this rhetoric and, and this potential reform by increasing our local hiring. What effect would this have, if any, on the educational system in the United States? Because universities, such as University of Michigan, Michigan, of Illinois at Chicago, uh, University of Pennsylvania, Johns Hopkins, so on, all the way down the line, they also uh, have uh, uh, are home to recipients of H-1B visas. Yeah, and it's interesting because um, nonprofits and, and universities are actually exempt from the cap. So uh, right now, the there's an 80,000 uh, 80, uh, visa limit every year, and, and universities and nonprofits are exempt from that cap. There has been an effort um, within the administration administration to uh, clamp down on, I guess, for lack of a better term, what diploma mills. Um, so there has been increasingly calls for rules that would require um, universities bringing in uh, H-1B workers to be accredited before they're able to, to file those cap-exempt applications. Caitlin, real quick, is there any teeth behind some of the criticisms that President Trump uh, have put out there? I mean, I hear a lot of review and warnings, but I don't really hear much by way of law or changing policies formally. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Uh, a lot of tough talk, not a lot of action yet. Um, the review, there's actually no deadline for that review. I think it's probably likely we'll see some results uh, at least before the filing season opens in April 2018. Um, I also think that there's a, probably a, a decent likelihood that there could be a company, you know, potentially prosecuted for alleged abuse um, of the program yeah, as did. a result of these worksite visits. That would be a really interesting case to try to set the precedent uh, through just prosecution of uh, some 
violation or flagrant uh, misallocation of the resources. Caitlin Weber, thank you so much for joining us. Caitlin Weber is a government analyst and a global trade policy expert for Bloomberg Intelligence, and she's based in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.